The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129 presents Pathways of Learning. Here's your host, Sister Marie Pappas. And today's guest, Michael J. Flood, is sharing his first book, Where Are You? Finding Myself in My Greatest Loss. It's about his inauguration as a dad, his intimacies with Sophia Michelle, his first child, as she grew in the womb of his wife, Tara. It's about Sophia Michelle's stillbirth and sorting through and picking up the pieces of a father's broken heart. It's about the vulnerability of a father's love. Mike, welcome to Pathways of Learning. Thank you so much for having me. So, Mike, it's been 10 years since Sophia Michelle went back to God. Mm -hmm. You're a writer. So what kept you from writing about Sophia's hidden life and her unthinkable departure just before birth? What made you finally publish the story of your heart? Um, uh, that's a great question. I think that it's uh, probably several factors. Um, I was the immediate uh, the immediate reason, I guess, is um, the influence of a friend who uh, encouraged me uh, to write down my thoughts. And when they came out more easily, I guess, and I don't mean easy because, of course, it's difficult to sort through all of this, but when they seemed to come out and I'd written several thousand words on a first sitting, I said, huh, okay, maybe, maybe this is something I can do. Um, but 10 years it took, really, for me to, uh, to, to begin that process. And um, I would guess that it's the same obstacles that uh, grief uh, presents for anybody to grow uh, or cope after loss. Um, in the case of, uh, I don't know, a tragic loss, how many people spend years before they're able to talk about the loss, uh, or in the case of an expected loss, um, you know, I don't know, not, uh, a parent or something like that, you know, who might die in a um, an acceptable and expectable way, uh, even then, it is sometimes months uh, or years before somebody can say, uh, uh, talk about uh, a fond memory or something. So grief, for some reason, causes us to, um, I don't know, maybe uh, not to become ourselves or to stop mm. being ourselves in some way. Yeah, because you do frame your story as finding yourself. So you were lost. It wasn't just that you lost Sophia Michelle, but you doubt. yourself were lost. And so... Mm -hmm. It's hard to have a voice if you're lost. Without a doubt. Yeah. And I think I, uh, and you're right, I, uh, I think I spend quite a bit of time in my memoir talking about that feeling of being lost and, um, and confused um, and, and grief exacerbates those feelings. Uh, I feel like I may have had those feelings in the first place, being kind of a you know, a young, even a kid, and I talk about this a little bit, but being a kid who was frequently, you know, wasn't sure where I belonged and things like that, and that's a popular experience for for people. Yeah, I was going to um, say that. Yes. Yeah, without a doubt, right? I, I certainly do. Well, that's the part of the power of your book is 
because you show us your undressed humanity through the grief process. I think all of us then connect with our own humanity, both as children and that sense of loss. There's a whole, I don't know if you're um, aware, there's a whole school of uh, catechesis uh, based on that, that young children, their greatest fear when they're young is to be lost, to be separated from their parents. Mm -hmm. And so the Good Shepherd Catechesis is the... um, program. Mm -hmm. And it builds on that by first introducing the children to the good shepherd who shepherds his sheep. And if one of them is lost, he just goes out and will spend whatever time and energy it takes to Mm -hmm. find the lost sheep. So um, I think the experience of being lost happens to everyone. And when I'm teaching the Good Shepherd Catechesis to um, teachers and catechists, one of the things I say is we tend to think this is something that children experience, and they do in their early years. But where all through life we find ourselves lost, even as adults. You know, there are many ways. It's not so much the physically being lost as it is our hearts often find themselves lost. No different than for... um, the experience of grief, which is an intense, much more intensified experience of being lost. So the title of your book is Where Are You? Finding Myself in My Greatest Loss. So do you think that all persons find themselves by living the Paschal Mystery, going through the cross and death to resurrection and glory? Is the greatest loss not to live the Paschal Mystery, just to kind of truncate your life at the point of tragedy? You said that the only way to heal a broken arm is the pain of resetting the bone. And that I think that's a great image, a first time I've heard that image, for the Paschal Mystery experience. So as a sister of the resurrection, learning to live the spirituality of the Paschal Mystery is the charism of my community. So um, I'm wondering if it isn't the spirituality for human life. Well, if I'm understanding, I, I think that the, the it, when given the opportunity, and that's the wrong word, I'm sure, but when when you experience uh, some kind of suffering, um, it can break you. There are p- plenty of people who are broken and um, you know can effectively give up because of the suffering. But I think that in my experience of suffering and and in my experience of suffering, it was to find some kind of uh, value. I said, there's got to be a value of this. Uh, otherwise, it's just cruel, right? I mean, yes. Um, and uh, when I, and it just came in drips and drabs over a decade, uh, a lifetime, in fact, as I talk about in the book, the various losses that I may have experienced. Um, I think that this, the, the salvation really is recognizing the value of others uh when i'm when when you shoulder your suffering on your own or i should speak for myself but when i attempted to shoulder my suffering on my own uh that was a burden and and it is devastating to acknowledge this but even between me and my wife who was not simply you know if i say lost a loved one my wife experiences that loss as well, you know. Um, someday our parents, you know, will depart. And while it might be my parent or my wife's parent, that's our loss. This, Sophia, was so much more 
our loss, our shared loss, but at times you still find yourself saying, I've got to do this alone, and you exclude your partner in that way, and that is a lonely, lonely, lonely feeling, and it makes the suffering worse. Uh, so when I started recognizing, like I said, in drips and drabs, you know, you start to see others and the value of, you know, being with another person, whether it is my wife or family or friends or new people that we met in this journey, uh, bereavement groups, things like that, um, and then eventually over the decade, uh, strangers, people we'd never known before who came to our toy drive or who we met at a, a bereavement you know, type meeting or something like that, and you start to see these people and you say, maybe, you know, maybe this is the, the, the value, so that through the suffering, there can be great, great growth uh, for sure yes yeah, so there are some saints i remember when i was really young in my formation as a religious uh hearing about and sharing um and discussions saints who actually prayed for suffering after they had gone through multiple sufferings which sounded outrageous to me as a young person mm. but having myself had my own share of suffering in one way or another I realized I remember when my father was dying and I was completely powerless. There was nothing I could do to stop it from happening. I remember thinking afterwards, going through the uh, grief process, that there were insights and, and things I learned in that depth that I could not have garnered any other way except by walking through that darkness and that pain. And so maybe that's what the saints were talking about, those who prayed for, for pain. Now, I want to assure you that I myself have never reached the heights of holiness where I found myself praying for pain because I think God has been good at just giving it to me without asking. So I just let him be in charge of that. So you were talking... Um, directly to me as I read your book. And I think every reader is going to have that experience that it's you have a very personal way of engaging the reader. So you shared very raw, undressed thoughts and feelings, even incoherence got shared and repetition and shocking horror. There are times you really made me draw back like, what? But it was all real. It was all true. I, you know, I think the authenticity of it is um, refreshing in a world that postures much too much. So you made me visit my own losses. Mm -hmm. um, like I liked your um, sharing about your uh, car. What was it? The purple Mako Shark Corvette Matchbox mm -hmm. car. I love that story. <laughs> I love that little vignette of loss. Mm -hmm. And I thought about the pen, it, I, I, and I know it sounds so ridiculous, except I can share this with you because you told me about your car. Mm -hmm. So I had this pen. It was a blue pen. It had a little beautiful star design on it, and I used that pen to take all my um, exams, graduate um, mm -hmm. courses and everything. And one day, it, like your car, one day it was just gone, and mm -hmm. nothing I could do brought it back and I couldn't even imagine where I could have lost it. Mm -hmm. So it forced me your reflection on your loss, your losses and bringing me to reflect on mine forced me to revisit the gospel when Mary Magdalene weeps because she grieved the loss of Jesus and then she suddenly encounters him. But Jesus doesn't comfort her. He tells her not to cling to him. Now of course mm -hmm. you might 
<laughs> guess that I have meditated in a retreat, a week-long retreat I made. I meditated on this gospel a long, mm-hmm. long time mm-hmm. because I was very upset that Jesus didn't comfort her, mm-hmm. that he tells her, don't cling to me. And then, these are the two sentences that caught me in prayer. Mm-hmm. Don't cling to me, go. That was the next thing he said, go. Now, he told her to go to tell the others, but I had a hard time praying, um, trying to understand my own relationship with Jesus, uh, the lack of comfort being offered, and then the command to just go. Go, And now I resolved that prayer experience by realizing I didn't have to cling to him because he was holding me. It was something I say often, that I'm more in the hands of God than I am in the hands of anyone or anything. So I wonder what, and you probably have insights having uh, grieved as you did the journey that you made. Why do we cling? Why do we think that we lose ourselves when we lose something or someone? Oh, I'm sure that there are... uh philosophers and theologians and so on and so forth who can answer this question better. I'll just settle for a human heart, an authentic human heart. That's right. That's right. Uh, That's right. And and just to to make a point, you know, you said just a minute ago about, you know, how the, my writing is, you know, heartfelt or authentic. And and it's true. And I I felt that that's the only way I could tell the story. Um, But it is also, the story is crafted. And I did my best, you know, I'm, t- I'm recounting an experience that is a decade, if not, you know, in other cases of, of the memoir, decades long, uh, old anyway. And um, so it is structured, and it's supposed to uh, sound personal and heartfelt, and it is supposed to be disorienting at times. And I felt it. Uh, you know, that I, I, it's important to me that people recognize the, uh, I think, you know, it, frankly, incoherent. At times it is jarring and you don't know which end is up. And I hope that the narrative I present, um, you know, conveys that. Um, so it is authentic in that way uh, and contrived in another way. I, I mean, I hate to say that about my own experience, but the, the, the experience of writing is a contrivance. You, you're making something. So, so with that said, um, I think that uh, you know, it, it's really difficult for me to say. But why do we cling? Um, because we love so much. Mm. Because I don't want to let that go, uh, and I don't really know how else to answer it. But um, uh, no, that's it, it. It gets me choked up just thinking about it. I loved her. You know, my brother died. I loved him. My grandmother passed away. I loved her. I don't want to let them go. We don't want to say goodbye. And there are people who are spiritually stronger than I am, and uh, maybe they're more capable of doing that. And um, Yeah, so as know, a teenage girl, love, I, I discovered this poster that said, when you love, you risk crying. Oh my gosh, I loved that poster. Yeah, and I yeah. it was mine until it was tattered. Yeah. But I never lost the saying, when you yeah. love, you risk crying. And that's another thing that I mulled about a lot. And I'm saying, what's the alternative? You cannot love and protect yourself from the tears. Mm-hmm. Or you can love and be grateful that you have tears because you've loved and you've loved over and over again. So... You know, the the irony, of course, is 
holding uh, well it's it's sort of like forgiveness um you know if you don't forgive someone you hold on to the pain and it just hurts longer uh in the same way with loss you know um uh, you know when when you let go the pain can uh, you know the pain diminishes in a strange way that and i don't mean that i'm letting go by any stretch of the imagination i uh, i was just having a conversation with somebody the day before yesterday and uh i said you know i feel i'm feeling a certain amount of sadness that i've finished writing the book and it's getting published it's coming out and i'm a little sad it's going to be done and he you know wide-eyed he said look to me and he said done what do you mean done he says you wrote a book it's never over now it's it's out there forever he says it's it will never end now, and I said, "Wow, that's true." And and I, you know, it's like you, the, maybe letting go, maybe clinging is our feeble attempt to say this can never end if I just hold on to this. Mm. Um, but it's love, truly, and the productivity of love that is, I would guess, more everlasting than that pain and clinging might be. Yeah, but you and I weren't the first two who thought of that. That's what Saint Paul was saying. You know, faith, hope, and love. Well, he but... was the first to say everything, so that's not really fair. Not really. Jesus beat him to a few <laughs> things. True. That's true. <laughs> so when you were uh, leading up to telling of Sophia's uh, death, you first described the wondrous joy of everything going so perfectly. Mm-hmm. You met the woman who you couldn't even imagine deserving. You mm-hmm. had a home in a beach community. Mm-hmm. You and your wife were expecting your first child. Mm-hmm. It was like newly wedded bliss. Bliss, yeah. So if the context had been less ideal, if there were more struggle before you lost Sophia, would it have been less horrific? I would doubt it. I would doubt it. Uh, I mean, to think that because of the, you know, the, um, I don't know what to call it, but the, the privileges that my wife and I both had of, you know, uh, our our lives, our jobs, our home, etc. Um, to think that uh, somebody without those uh, blessings would, you know, be less crushed by loss, um, I, I would doubt it. Um, uh, yeah, do no. you really think so? I, I don't, well, I don't know. Okay, so I, I'm going to say, say that in my would... experience, okay. I... You know, I I knew a lot more hardship than it seemed you did at that young age. Okay. And um, I felt and I thought that I got schooled in how to deal with suffering because at an early age I I met it. Mm -hmm. And um, it was not something that was just once. It was, you know, pretty regular. So I thought... And I still think that maybe I just got schooled in um, learning how to live the Paschal Mystery. Mm-hmm. How to? I always say that the spirituality of my religious community is in the prepositions. You go through the mm-hmm. cross and death to resurrection mm-hmm. and glory. So I've experienced the whole of it, you know, both the going through things in life and also the amazing fullness of life and joy and blessing Mm -hmm. that I experience having gone through things and insights and sharings, the intimacies that I've garnered along the way. So, but I may be wrong and I know I may be wrong because we all live out of our own experience and try to make sense of it. And that's some of the sense I've made of it. I got schooled early. 
sure. Well, uh, you know, that's interesting. Uh, you know, uh, I have, uh, and, and I write about in the book, but, uh, you know, the, my brother's death, for example, and, you know, uh, that was a good decade and a half or so before uh, Tara and I um, conceived Sophia. Um, and I will tell you, I was mindful that my life with Tara was going well. And I was mindful of that because before I'd met Tara, I was struggling. I had to endure some very serious uh, um, loss. And, um, and, and, and I said, see, things are good. See, this is what happens. Just hang in there. And, and even in the worst loss, you know, I lost my brother. You know, that was, that was, that, I thought that ruined my life. And, but here we are. I met, a, I met a woman, and we're all good, and everything's good. And, you know, um, when, the, when we lost the baby, I did feel like, well, I've been through this. I know this is the way this happens. But I think that the comfort we had was of a, you know, a physical comfort. I think that if the comfort, understanding of some kind of spiritual comfort, I think that can help you endure loss better than... Um, we thought we were... I should speak for myself. I thought we were invulnerable. Mm-hmm. I thought nothing, not, what can stop us? And that's a dangerous thought. And in fact, now writing this book, I have come to terms with vulnerability. And sharing my vulnerability has been worthwhile for me. Um, yes, and you offer us a great invitation to um, dare to be vulnerable. And I love that about your book. And you make it so credible because you're so nakedly honest throughout the book in terms of what you felt and what you went through that the invitation becomes alluring almost to like dare to be vulnerable Mm -hmm. because there's great grace in it. I will, uh, if I could just, uh, that's something I still remind myself though. I still have to, and to use your expression, I still have to dare myself, you know, that I am still, um, you know, it's still, it's still difficult to be vulnerable. Yes, always. uh, The mistake is that it's weakness, of course. That's the misunderstanding, that your vulnerability is weakness. Uh, Even even if they are the same thing, I guess you understand, right? But the the word grace, I think think you're right, that in vulnerability I have found grace. Um, And that's... uh, uh, that's a scary feeling if you're if you're not familiar with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> you know? it is. Yes, it is. Michael J. Flood is a husband and a father of three little girls. His first daughter, Sophia Michelle, has returned to her heavenly father, and his other two daughters and his wife Tara reside in Long Island, New York. We're learning life lessons today from Mike on Pathways of Learning, the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM one twenty nine.
Michael J. Flood is a high school literature and writing teacher and the author of Where Are You? Finding Myself in My Greatest Lost, his first published work detailing how he lost and found himself after the stillbirth of his daughter, Sophia Michelle. So, Mike, you share that you had an abiding sense, and you referred to this in our first segment, of sadness as a child, and you struggled to explain it to yourself. So my sense, or at least my interpretation, was that you did a lot of mulling as a kid, and I myself like mulling, and I did like mulling as a kid. It makes me... um, go deeper and there's something for me I'm not saying it's necessarily your experience something for me about mulling and going deeper that makes me feel very secure I don't know what that safety thing is but when I go in I'm like in my comfort space so I don't know about you like what made you go into the deep and do you understand that life-giving part of yourself better now is it a gift to you and not a liability Oh, without a doubt, uh, without a doubt, um, a gift, I think. Uh, I mean, to to try and be something other than what I am is uh, not only difficult, but perhaps detrimental. Um, so I think that I can be thoughtful or I can um, be, you know, introspective or whatever. And those are not bad qualities. You know, shy kids aren't bad kids. Uh, I, didn't, I don't mind being that way. Um, I think it's the, uh, when you, if when I am feeling inward, I cut other people off, uh, or, or shut people out, other people out, I think that's the danger. And those are not, you know, um, necessarily uh, codependent qualities uh, to be um, an introvert um, does not mean you shut other people out, uh, and I don't mean at all to say that, but um, uh, at times, my personality, I could be inward and also exclusive and uh, and cut other people out of my thoughts or feelings, and that is the danger to me, or that was the danger and continues to be. Um, you know, when I, when I need my time to think and look in and reflect, uh, you know, I find myself having to be mindful that, hey, there's other people in my life, and I do have to include them. Um, and that, in the end, it's, to pick up where we left off before, that's the grace of being vulnerable. You know, that when I am vulnerable and can be open to others, uh, that's, that's the grace. When I am vulnerable and strike out at others because I have perceived some weakness or something like that, uh, that's the detriment. Uh, and that's what I think I kind of go through in, in, in my book is trying to sort that out. And in a strange way, our experience uh, Sophia with Sophia uh, with Sophia uh, the stillbirth the grieving process uh, I couldn't get around somehow the fact that no matter what all the signs were pointing to others whether it was my wife or or the more general other um, I just found myself feeling that the only way to really get through this was to be with others so so while I have reflected for the better part of uh, a decade on loss, the reflections again and again and again turn me to think of others. 
Yes, and to a uh, sense of bonding and solidarity. I saw that in the support group that you joined. That's right. That's and right. sometimes when we are naturally more introverted inward, we don't know what we're missing. And so the grace becomes an invitation to explore the unknown, what mm. we are not yet um, experiencing as gift. And mm. relationships are gifts, uh, priceless gifts. And so our vulnerabilities do push us to um, cross borders that naturally we would not cross. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Mike, you say that it's typically male to act like you know exactly where you are, but maybe such posturing is just adult posturing, pretending that we know when we don't. So as children, I think we just let ourselves show and we haven't learned the distorted art of having a smooth ego, a a Mm -hmm. public face. So, Mm -hmm. so much of spirituality, at least from a Christian point of view, is deconstructing the ego back to its childlike transparency, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So some of this is like that kind of spiritual walk too learning what it's like to be part of the kingdom of God, to be childlike, to be transparent, and that kind of solidarity where we connect without much um, analysis to lots of other people, including, as you said, in your walk, not only those you were most intimate with, your, your wife, your family, your friends, but also complete strangers who we begin to find ourselves in those relationships as well. And I don't know, it's one of the lessons you taught me when I read your book. Like, he's so right about the childlike way. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you'll know the Bible story better than I do, but um, when Jesus, and I include this at, at some point, um, uh, and, and you're challenging me, me now to remember my my writing uh, more than I did, uh, more than I do, um, I, I've, I've taken a break from the book for several weeks now and said, okay, i, I got to stop looking at it and, and just give it a breath. Uh, so I've started working on some other projects and things. But um, but I know that when I talk, I think about a, when we talk about Sophia's funeral, um, the gospel is the story of, uh, you know, the, the disciples shooing away the, the children. Yes. And Jesus says, hey, 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 what are you talking you got to let the children come. And he says, any of you, and I'm paraphrasing obviously, but uh, any of you who are not like a child can't see the kingdom of God. Right, you can't, we can't know the kingdom of God. Or someone recently has planted in my head this, and I love it, this notion that um, we, oh, in talking about purgatory, that we have to be ripe for heaven in order to enjoy heaven. And so purgatory is that process by which we become ripe for heaven so that we will enjoy heaven. So being childlike, that kind of undressing ourselves so we're not so layered with a painted ego, is part of our ripeness for enjoying the joy of heaven, I think. Without a doubt. So now I'm going to tread a little bit into dangerous territory, but much of today's sharing is dangerous territory because it's all about what is vulnerable. So I want to revisit that night when your wife Tara said, I don't feel the baby moving. And you said, it's okay. The baby's getting bigger now. There's not enough room for her to move around like that anymore. Mm -hmm. Did you ever 
revisit that response to your wife's anxiety. I mean, it's not that it would have made a difference in the outcome, but I was so shaken when I read your response because I was scared with Tara, Mm. and I didn't feel at all comforted by your response. (laughs) Of course not. Of course not. I mean, my, you know, uh, of course not. No, no. It was, although I may have... I may have really believed that. Absolutely, because um, you followed that with this inner question, and you, you write about it. And this is a quote from your book. Mm-hmm. Is it a lie, you said right after this, is it a lie when we speak with certainty about something we don't actually know with certainty? And then you say, I believed it might be okay. It doesn't have to be the worst. Mm-hmm. We are so blessed. Everything is going according to plan. Why should it be the worst? There's no reason to believe that. Mm-hmm. I said some Hail Marys just in case. <laughs> End quote. So there you go, bringing your words back to you. Yeah, well, I get, I get that a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so I think that in the dismissive way of being a, a know-it-all, I'm telling my wife, it's all right. Well, of course, why would you feel the baby moving? She's probably sleeping. It's all right. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. So it is dismissive in that way. However, like you said, I, I believed it, and I just didn't want my wife to worry about things. You know, everything's okay, everything's okay. Now, since then, uh, and since these, in this decade since, since we lost Sophia, I have paid more attention to stillbirth awareness and reading articles and, you know, on, you know, uh, reading other people's reflections and thoughts and experiences, and and when you are pregnant, uh, that is a major no-no, right? That that now I sadly we learn uh, too late, and um, and uh, that's usually when most learning is done. Too yes. Late. Um, uh, and I've learned that that's like uh, that's a no-no expression, uh, you know, to say anything when when a woman senses a lack of movement, uh, she should. Uh, not be told by people who don't know, people like me, that it's going to be okay. Uh, go to the doctor is really what should happen. And my wife, um, I can't talk about, I don't want to talk about what my wife feels, but uh, I, I, I know that she struggles with that exchange um, that evening, and she wonders what if. And that's an awful thing for me to have a part of and... Um, and uh, it's it's difficult. Yes, so you're right. This is dangerous territory. Um, <laughs> I am uh, when, when we I I did not talk <clears throat> all that extensively in the book about guilt, even though there is quite a bit to talk about, and that would be one of those things. Okay, so I'm I'm going to leave that tender space <laughs> alone for a while. So uh, you wrote that we feel unworthy of joy while we grieve makes me ask, are we ever worthy of joy, or is it always simply a pure gift? Do you think it might be an attitude of entitlement when we tell ourselves it's not supposed to be this way? What makes us think that bliss is what is rightfully ours, although in a way I guess it is because we are promised heaven? Uh, I feel like there are a lot of layers there. Um, Well, I, I... I think that I, I had no, I have in my life no expectation of bliss. Um, 
I do have an expectation to experience joy when joy is suitably expected. Um, you know, for example, a birthday, you know, a child's first birthday. When you're grieving the loss of your pregnancy, uh, a friend's child's birthday, first birthday or something, is not a joy. It is an awful, 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 awful fear. And uh, we had friends who'd had children that following year, and we want to celebrate with them, but you realize you can't. Yeah. And that's the kind of, that's the curse that I'm talking about. And, uh, and it took time for us to realize, or I should say, it took time for me to realize that, no, that I can still have that joy. A lot of things probably had to happen for me to realize that. Um, but, uh, but that's a complicated uh, dilemma anyway. Okay, so to move into a different space, and I really didn't know what to make of this incident, so I'm going to let you tell about it, and then we'll talk. Okay. So after you and your wife, Tara, were told that Sophia Michelle did not survive her stay in her mom's womb mm-hmm. and that labor would be induced to deliver your deceased child, the two of you began to smell something burning. So mm. talk about what happened next. Oh, my gosh. What a exactly, fiasco. exactly. What a fiasco. Uh, well, I will make a long-ish story short, but I'm not usually very good at that. Um, uh, long story short, the, the radiator, uh, something was overheating in the radiator in the room, in our, uh, in, in the delivery room, I guess. Um, it's, it's awful to think of it, that, that we were in the delivery room, like in the maternity ward, and we were, you know, just being like we were any other patient, and, and that is not how the hospital treated us. They were super sensitive to us, but um, we, there, were, there were women in the rooms next to us in labor and have, getting ready for their very healthy babies. It was a, a strange uh, placement for us. And then all of a sudden, I smelled smoke, and the radiator was smoking. Um, I reached, I, I buzzed the nurse's station. A, a wonderful nurse came in and uh, became very nervous and excited and ran out of the room and and I said where are you going and uh you know but she came back very promptly with uh several nurses they wheeled Tara's uh, bed um I followed um them into another room uh I came back to the original room to get our you know a couple of bags and and there was a a custodian I guess and uh you know a couple of custodians anyways uh you know, with the radiator open, uh, it must have been some kind of an electric radiator because he was messing with wires. Um, and but the thing was on fire; it was actually in in flames. In flames, yeah. Now you describe that so well in the book, and I'm like inside. I'm like, what the heck is going on? Like they don't have enough tragedy; they need to have a fire now on top right. of everything else. Right. Right. And then something about it also at the same time seemed very comical to me. You know, like. Uh, almost like uh, as a reader, as someone reading it and experiencing it vicariously through your narrative, mm-hmm. I began to think that it was also comical, you know, like almost like comic relief. Oh, we don't have to focus on the tragedy of all of this because now something crazy is happening. And I think mm-hmm. that's exactly what I called it. It's just like crazy. Yes, without a doubt. And I think that was my reaction. And I, and again, I forget exactly how I described it in the book, but I think I came back into the room and saw Tara, and I said, Tara, I, now, and I may have cursed, and I don't remember, but I, I think the thing's on fire. You know, the thing's on fire. Can you believe this? And, and 
you know, tragedy and comedy are sometimes close cousins, you know, and um, and it was funny, without a doubt, and I, I think we laughed in disbelief, um, and when I look back at it now, and this is strange, right? Yeah, very. When I look back at it now, we were preparing to deliver a lifeless child, and and we were sitting there for hours, hours, sitting there, waiting, waiting for this awfulness to be completed. But I look back at it now, that, that worst time of our lives, and I still think it was funny. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that that little chapter that you are referencing there is very much about that, you know, that even at the time, you know, there were things that were comforts or, or amusements. And, um, you know, you, you don't want to let yourself think it. Um, but uh, the terror and the joy, sometimes they are not mutually exclusive. That's you know? right. Sometimes they're holding hands, certainly in that Without moment. Michael Flood is the author of Where Are You? Finding Myself in My Greatest Loss, and also the writer and director of Too Much Noise, a short film in American Sign Language, which has appeared in several film festivals and won the Best Original Idea Award at New York City's 2018 Chain Film Festival. We're learning about Michael's heart today, its brokenness and redemption. This is Sister Marie on Pathways of Learning, Sirius XM 129. It's hard to breathe now you're gone It's hard for me to move on To be human is to suffer beyond our strength and then to find our life restored. It's the way we live the Paschal Mystery of Jesus. Michael J. Flood tells of his own Paschal Mystery story about how his greatest loss and the unfolding of life was not ended but changed, even transformed, but it was painful. So we've already admitted that Sophia's death was disorienting and painful. You had, Michael, built an intimacy with your daughter as she grew within Tara. You had given her your heart. And when we love another person, as I said earlier, we do risk crying, don't we? Mm -hmm. Or as you told Tim, and this I really jumped out of my skin, you felt as though you wanted to shoot yourself in the face. I can't tell you how strongly that hit me because I think because it was raw honesty and you weren't holding anything back. So it, it has made me think a lot about what got blurted out because it was your just raw feeling. Isn't our face our identity mm-hmm. because the other thing you talk about is shame the mm. f- feeling of shame and you know it's unwarranted shame mm-hmm. but we feel it anyway so talk a bit about that feeling of shame 
even though it has no basis? Well, uh, shame. I, um, if I could undress it a little bit, I guess. Um, embarrassment, even, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, embarrassed that... Uh, um, I think there's an expectation. You get pregnant, you have a baby. Uh, a cultural expectation. That's just the way it is. Um, as sure as you live and then you die, uh, people expect you get pregnant, you have a baby. And while everybody knows that these kinds of things happen when you are faced with it, um, uh, when you're faced with the demise of an, uh, an expected child or or a newborn, which is a similar um, experience uh, for many people that I met in child loss bereavement groups, that's that's sort of the uh, you know the sort of late term um, uh, fetal demise, as they call it. Uh, and the what do they call like the fourth trimester? You know, when a when a when a baby dies in those first few months, they're they're sort of similar um, similar experiences. Uh, and I don't know why I would feel shameful. Did I feel like less of a man? Mm-hmm. I know, wondered about like that. that. Something yep. you know those kinds of things there. But I think it's really about the failure of accomplishing a cultural expectation and in some ways a biological expectation, you know. Uh, we are probably conditioned to um, assign blame when things go wrong. And uh, when we maybe attempted to blame the doctors, we said, oh, that's not going anywhere because they kind of told us, you know, these things happen. You know, they, they weren't ready to accept any blame. So then you blame yourself. And that's shame. I guess. Um, uh, you know, I understand there is a difference between shame and guilt. So guilt would be if I had done something. And trust me, there are plenty of parents who blame, uh, who, who believe they are guilty, some uh, guilty of causing uh, uh, such, a, such a death. Um, and there are some parents who are actually guilty. Now, of course, that is true, right? There are parents who are violent. There are parents who are aggressive. You know, something like that could happen, in which case you would be guilty in that way of speaking. But the shame, you said shame even though it's unwarranted. Shame is never warranted. Shame is the feeling of guilt when it's not there. Well, someone helped me to distinguish between shame and guilt, and shame is directed at oneself, who one is, whereas guilt is an act that where something was wrong. Michael, I want to thank you for gifting us with your most tender and vulnerable love that lives in your heart. And in your story, we find residences of our own journeying, what and who we have lost, and the way we have limped back to journeying toward and forward with the help of God and friends and so many others along the way. In our losses and pain, may we find ourselves, each of us, carried by God our Father, and may we find ourselves always in his embrace. God bless. Thank you so much. I will laugh, I will cry, shake my fist at the sky, but I will.